I'm very thankful to be in this room, this single room together. Um, as you all know, we are praying through what I know will be long, and only if it's led by God, and we'll say more about that at our congregational meeting, but we're talking about what would it mean if we had a larger sanctuary. I just need to let you know this is about the same width as that rendering we did would create if the Lord led us to continue as we are just praying. He would show us His his guidance on. So that's a longer process, but I would say that it's special to be in one room together. Um, also very special to preach the same text as last Lord's Day. Take two, uh, not because necessarily I felt like what we talked about last week needed to be redone, but I hope you've read in your emails this week that we're going to ask for God to show us something holistically deeper than what we looked at last week. We got started um, and so this is what is, at least to me, it's the very middle of this book. It's one of the more important chapters in the book of 1 Samuel, and we decided we would take two weeks in chapter 15. I told you last week, for those of you that were here, that this is the text that I preach whenever I have been asked in the last three or four years to speak to high school or college athletes, particularly athletes, sometimes even just young adults. Um, I don't know if you all knew this, but back when I was in seminary, I was blessed to have a year where I was a chaplain for the Chicago Fire, an MLS soccer team, and got to do missions in a different way. Wish I would have had 1 Samuel 15 sort of in my mind and thought at that time of ministry to those in a different context than I knew. But last fall, I was asked to speak to a club volleyball team in Greenville, Tennessee, and talk to their seniors who were graduating to go off to college programs. And this was the text we turned to. A couple years ago, both of my daughters were playing in U.S. soccer regionals down in Louisiana, and they had one of the biggest games of their lives, and I said, I'd like to do a chapel service down in the hotel lobby at 7.30. For anybody that wants to join, Pastor Jim, Coach Jim, and it's going to be this text. Why this text? Allow me to elaborate. This passage is going to show us what happens to those who do not know and refuse to believe whose they are who the Creator and Redeemer of all things is, who God the Lord the King is, if we do not know whose we are, therefore who we are and why we exist, we will begin to be defined by something else. If we don't fear the Lord, we will begin to fear people. And we'll look to people most frequently as that which we will find an identity in, courage in, and as I often am talking to young ladies, because I've mostly coached older girls, one of the things that I will say when talking with this passage to, to young athletes is, you're going to have a bunch of crazy fans on the sidelines screaming bloody murder at you to try harder to do better. You have to know whose you are. You have to know who you are, or there's enough voices right now telling you what to think of yourself. You will be ripe for an informed identity that comes to you from other human beings. And then I'll transition to talk to young ladies and say, if you don't know whose you are and who the designer of all things is, you will fall prey to a young man coming along telling you that there's something you have to give to him. And if you don't give it to him, you won't know who you are, but you're his, so you need to do what he asks. This text is going to show us the absolute danger and the descent of what can happen in the heart of one who did know who the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords is, but doesn't believe it and allows for influences from the outside, fear of man, to trump fear of God, and the consequences are gross, they're dastardly awful. 
And so this is a powerful text for us to turn to. I hope you'll understand why we did it in two weeks. If you haven't listened to last week's text, I think it very much informs what we're going to talk about today. So I would encourage you to go back and listen to that, that message. Saul, the anointed of God, he had a calling from God. He had an identity from God, and he didn't believe it. And this text shows us how bad things got and how quickly. So let's stand together and allow me to read God's word. I will read the whole chapter. It's long. We read it last week. But may God use his word and would he apply it to our lives by his Holy Spirit. Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I've noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. And so the Kenites departed from the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agog, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king. For he's turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel. The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on a mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I devoted to the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, the sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may worship the Lord. 
Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he's not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of God. Father, help us, we pray. Apply this to our lives for your glory, for our good, and would you show us the gospel of Jesus that we so desperately need. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I know that is long, especially when we read it last Lord's Day. But I ask you, did you feel it as I read? Did you feel, did you see the gross descent of the fear of man? You have doubt and denial of Saul's identity and calling that leads to direct disobedience of God's command and it turned into a visible deterioration of his soul to the point that he's so deceived he does not even know that he is not obeying the Lord. When I think of 1 Samuel 15, a psalm that comes to mind, interestingly enough, is Psalm 34. Verse 8 and 9, you've heard us share it before. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear the Lord have no lack. Last week, that's what we tried to emphasize in this text. We see in this passage the faithfulness and the forgetlessness of God. He never forgets what sin and evil require. He never forgets that his righteous resolution is needed. And that's why we see the command given in the first place. Our God is faithful. We should taste and see that he's good. And that's what we tried to do in our kind of first sermon on this. But now as we read it again from a different angle, what happens when the the people of God don't fear the Lord and instead they fear man? It it, kind of changes it, doesn't it? And what we need to do this, this afternoon is taste and spit out what could come of us if we fear people more than we fear God. Taste and see the Lord's good, that's true, but taste and spit out the consequence of a life that fears people more than the God who made people. Fear of man does not just lead us on a trajectory of self-destruction, but of God-rejection. That's what we see here. This passage is of immense sober warning. We consider again that God gives a command to his servant who's supposed to execute his holy justice. He tells Saul to devote to destruction the Amalekites for God says, I've never forgotten what they've done to my people. That was in Deuteronomy 25, also Exodus 17. We looked at that last Lord's Day. And Saul does not obey. He decides what is worth keeping and what is worthless to discard. He and the people with him, they spare the best of the animals for a sacrifice. He spares Agog the king. He does not obey. And the Lord grieves. Verse 10, I regret that I made Saul king. Again, 
for those of you that didn't join us or haven't heard it online with the snow Sunday, when it says, I regret making Saul king, understand that doesn't mean God changes his mind. He doesn't lie. He's not fickle like we are. If we look back to Genesis chapter 6, verses 5 and 6, it says that the Lord grieved that he'd made man. He regretted he'd made man because the wickedness of mankind was evil only all the time. And in, in the Hebrew of Genesis 6, 5, and 6, you have this parallelism of the Lord's regret with his heart's grief. And that's what we have on display here. The Lord grieves the sin of Saul. It wasn't just the Lord that grieves it. Samuel pulls an all-nighter. He's just tormented. He's torqued inside of him. And he wakes up the next morning to confront Saul. And we didn't spend much time on this last week, so here's where we enter in. Verse 13 is just crazy. Saul sees Samuel come to him and he, he just very tritely says, The Lord be with you. Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the command of the Lord. Parents in the room, have you ever known that your child has disobeyed? You know exactly what happened. Maybe you're like me and you're thinking, what must they be thinking as they know that when I walk in the door after work today, we're going to have a frank discussion. And as I'm driving home, I'm thinking through, Lord, help me not to take their sin personally. This is when I usually blow it. But they better show contrition on their face the moment I walk in the door because the way they talk to their mother, because of what I know happened at school. What happens in the heart of a father who's unholy, but yet alone the heart of a father who believes disciplines in his purview from God when he walks in and that child says, hey, dad, like what are we doing for dinner tonight? Can we go out? Wipe that cheerful look off your face. Are you kidding me? Have you not been anxious for me to come home? Is what you did not on your mind as it's been on my mind since I learned about it? That's what we have here. The way Saul greets Samuel is the beginning, as far as our observation in this text, that something has gone very wrong. I have performed the command of the Lord, Samuel. Have you? Glad you think so, Saul. Wait a minute, what is that that I hear? The bleating of sheep, the lowing of oxen. Oh yeah, that Lord, yeah, yeah. The people, they wanted to save the best for the Lord. They want to do a sacrifice and a worship service. Don't worry though, Samuel. The worthless things, we devoted them to destruction. We took care of it. We read... In verse 13 and again in verse 20, that Saul thinks he has obeyed the voice of the Lord. Yet evidence to the contrary just fills the air. All of our senses, if we were there, would evidence the disobedience, the smell of it, the sight of it, the sound of it. And Samuel just can't take it. And so he says, stop. Just like a parent might say to that child who wants to talk about evening plans, stop talking. And I will tell you what the Lord told to me last night. You might have slept just fine, Saul. I haven't been sleeping all night because I know what needs to be said. Verse 17. Saul, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? Did the Lord not anoint you to be king over his people? First thing Samuel reminds him of is, Saul, you have an identity. You have a calling. You had the greatest calling over God's people. It's not like you just have a, a title and a job description, though. You were sent on a mission that mattered. Saul said it, says it himself in verse 20. He says, I went on the mission from the Lord. 
In other words, you don't just have a title and, and, and a job description in the law of God. You actually got to have an adventurous mission assigned to you. You've got meaning. I bring this up because I, I can only tell you I'm, I'm definitely an adventurous, I get bored easy kind of a guy. And I've sat with many adults who just feel like I'm bored in my life and in my job and I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I have a job with a, a, a job description, but I, I don't have any freedom to, to execute it. And so therefore I feel all oppressed. And I've talked to many of you even. That's not Saul here. He's got the calling. He's got a title. He's got the law of God giving him his description. And he even has from the prophet of God himself the most adventurous mission he could possibly be on, rooted in the holy remembrance of God to do something that matters. Here's our question. Why is that not enough? And see, we don't have to guess at that. In fact, in verse 24, Saul tells us himself, the Bible identifies the problem. He says, I have sinned, for I transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people. He says it. Fear of man caused me to disobey the God I was called to fear. Fear of man trumped my fear of God. In fact, if we go back to chapter 12, when Samuel does the very, very final big speech before the people at Gilgal, he says to Saul and the people, if you'll fear the Lord and serve him and obey his voice only, it will be well with you. Well, things are clearly not well for Saul. They're getting worse. And we have to ask the question, how much damage can happen just from fearing God instead of people? More than we realize. See, it's, it's either or, not both and. And I, this is where the application is going to be through this whole thing, but I hope you understand this point. Fear of God or fear of man. It's one or the other. If one lives with fear of people and finds meaning and power there, one cannot live with fear of God and find awe and power to be there. Not simultaneously. Fearing people directly correlates with not fearing God. That's what we see in this text. Let me show you where we see it. In verse 15, Saul has so forgotten God that he stops even acknowledging God. You can see it. He says to Samuel, the people, they're the ones that spared all the animals to sacrifice to the Lord your God. Do you see that in verse 15? He says it again in verse 21. He doesn't say our God. He doesn't say my God. Again in verse 30. When he's been rejected and he says, Samuel, just come with me one more time. I want all the people to see that I've not been rejected. I've been rejected. I get it. But don't let them see it. And then he says this, I want you to return with me so that they see me bow down to the Lord, your God. Verse 30. Three times. Fear of people correlates with disassociation from God and his people. That's what we see in this text. Now, when I say fear of God versus fear of people, I don't want you to think of being afraid, okay? It can include being afraid, all right? So I'm not discounting that. But I want you to think with me about being affected by or influenced by, enamored with, consumed with, maybe anxious about being found out by, basically orienting reality around the dominant presence of another. So when we say fear here, I want you to think dominance or authority over me, over my thoughts, over my feelings, over my actions that, that is given to another. That's who we fear. And it's either or. 
either dominance and authority given to the living God or dominance and authority given to people created by God. It's either or. And here's the thing. It grows. Always. Whatever we fear grows. Think of it this way. If we fear God, He's eternally holy. And so therefore, it increases, it grows, because God is eternally worthy of our fear. All right? Think with me about people. People were not made to be feared by other people. So it will never hold. We have to continue to look to people more and more and more for influence and and their dominance over us, if that's where we're going to get our identity from. And since they weren't made to fill that position, we have to snack on other people's affections for us. So it always grows. If it's fear of God, it grows because it's eternally worthy. If it's people, it's going to grow because they're inherently unsatisfying. That's what we see here. When God's not feared, it digresses to the point that He's not even acknowledged. And it grossly descends to the point that we're consumed with fear of others. One of the more prominent books, I certainly would recommend it to you, that's about this theme of fear of man versus fear of God was written by Ed Welch, When People Are Big and God Is Small. Maybe you've heard of that work. He gives some diagnostic questions. He says, do you struggle with peer pressure? He says, are you an overcommitted people pleaser? Do you find it hard to say no? Are you always second-guessing your decisions because of what others might think of you? Do you feel empty unless someone else fills you? Maybe by their need of you. Do you get easily embarrassed? Do you ever tell little white cover-up lies just to look better in the eyes of others? Are people frequently a source of your anger and frustration? Do you find yourself being controlled by a need to avoid other people? See, in other words, fear of man is an everyday part of our lives in a fallen world. We do things for people. We change our mind because of people. We get frustrated with people. We avoid people. We need to be filled by people. We get embarrassed in front of people. It's a huge struggle for the ages. But I think in our generation, the intensity has just been turned up. It's because of all those devices that you have in your pocket or maybe you're reading from right now. And that's okay. I want you to think with me about how the cell phone, smartphones have changed everything when it comes to fear of man. We talk about this all the time in our home. Right now, if somebody texts one of my children, they know my children know that they're trying to get their attention. Different than when I dated my, my wife and I had to call her. If she wasn't in her dorm room, she's not there. wonder where she is. But now, in our generation, this affects us as well. We are constantly enslaved to the reality that somebody else knows that we are making them wait before we respond to them. And the power that that has to create codependence and possessiveness over us, it doesn't just impact romantic relationships, but it's work realities. It's just life. The amount of power others have of us is just off the charts. And what we see in this text is we need to understand the stark alternatives of fear of God versus fear of man. If you fear God the King, that's one thing. Think about who He is. He's the Creator, the Covenant Maker, the righteous God who's forgetless of all things that require His resolution. He can eternally rescue us from His wrath because He's a God of mercy. He owns time and space. He is sovereign. He alone has an assessment of us that is absolutely accurate. Fear God? 
Or what's the alternative? Fear people because of what they might think of you in the moment. Or what you think they might think of you in the moment because you can't know. They're finite and so are you. Worst case scenario, it's fear God or fear people that can kill the body. But after that, they can't do anything else. But what of God who can kill the body and dismiss us from himself forever? We have to understand the alternatives. When we're we're going to meet David next week in chapter 16. And this is a stark difference with Saul. In chapter 17, when David fights Goliath, is there a question of who David fears the most? Does David fear the giant standing in front of him? Or does David fear the Lord, who's the God of armies? Who's holy and has already proven that he will, and he is infinitely able to protect his people. Who's David going to fear? I think of another illustration. Late in his life, after David is already the king, David's going to have won a bunch of battles, David is going to sin big time. We read about it in 1 Chronicles 20. He wants to know how great his influence has become, so he takes a census. And in 1 Chronicles 20, verse 1, we read that this is incited by Satan himself to make David prideful. And David sins, and he takes a census, and God gives him three options of a consequence. Option one, three years of famine. Option two, three months of devastation by the sword of his enemies. Option three, three days of the sword of the Lord through some pestilence in the land. And he's, he's distressed. Which alternative do I choose? Here's what he says. Let me fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But do not let me fall into the hand of man. See, to David, it's either or. And he chose to fear and submit to the will of the Lord, and he did so repentantly. To Saul, it's also either or. And Saul chose to fall prey to fear of man unrepentantly. And the consequences are vastly different. So here's what I want us to do. I want you to see with me some major ways that fear of man shows up in our life. We see it here in Saul. So first thing, it shows up as self-loathing and anxiety on one side of the coin. We see it in verse 17. When Samuel says, though you are little in your own eyes, didn't God make you king over his people? Saul, you're little in your own eyes. In fact, when we meet Saul in chapter 9, that's what he does. He just kind of grovels and says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin. I'm insignificant. My people are insignificant. This self-deprecation goes back to chapter 12. Remember when Saul was announced to be the king of the people, who they asked for. There he is. He's large and he's handsome. He's taller than every other Israelites. And they call his name. Bueller, Bueller. Nowhere to be found. He's hiding among the luggage. Why? Because he fears what they might think of him. From the beginning, Saul is anxious of what others might think of him or what others could do to him. So think of his calling in chapter 10 when he was told by Samuel that when the Spirit comes down on you, you're going to see a Philistine garrison right across the way near your hometown. Do what your hands find to do. What does he do? Nothing. He just goes home. Why? Do you know what a Philistine garrison could do to me? I mean, I'm just Saul. I'm just from Benjamin. He fears what the enemy could do. He's anxious of it. But more than that, remember when he then comes back and he sees his uncle after he was out looking for the donkeys and his uncle says, you saw Samuel the prophet? Tell me everything Samuel said to you. And Saul says, oh, he just told me that the donkeys were found. Told me I could go home now. But of the matter of the kingdom, Saul said nothing. Why? Well, what's his uncle going to think? He's going to think he's crazy. 
Why would I tell my uncle? What if he tells my dad? See, Saul from the beginning is anxious with assumptions of what people might think or do. Maybe you know this. Assumptions rule you. I assume people won't want me once they get to know me. I assume I will not be good enough. I assume the enemy could destroy me. I assume my uncle and others, they're going to laugh at me. So I need to hide and deny who I've been declared to be by God. Maybe I'll fake it or maybe I'll quit altogether. That's just one side of the coin. Because if one doesn't fake it or hide, there's a different alternative. Fear of man can also show up as the opposite. Self-serving, self-exaltation. And in a room like this, I know some of you may lean more towards self-loathing. You're afraid of what others might think of you. Afraid of what they could do to you. But there is a whole other side to this, and this may be more like some of you where actually your self-focus and your fear of man looks a lot more dangerous like self-exaltation and demand that others give something to you. Demand that they honor you. This guy saw, we see both. Look at it, it's blatant. When Sammy goes to find him, Sammy says, oh, he, he went and made a monument to himself and then kind of went on from there. What, what do you mean? Uh, he made a monument? A monument for what? Oh, for himself. Saul goes from self-loathing to creating a monument for himself in self-exaltation. We've already seen this if you go back to chapter 14. Remember, he makes the rash vow when his son Jonathan has gone to fight across the lines. He says to the people, Cursed is any of you if you eat any food until I am avenged of my enemies. Show me my glory is how he's treated the people. I already mentioned this, but at the end of this chapter, he knows the kingdom's been pulled away from him. And he goes from demanding that people honor him to being desperate if they don't. And so he says to Samuel, please just come with me. Come with me so I can worship God still with you because I don't want to let the elders and the people see what has happened to me. He's desperate. So his anxiety and self-doubt is like mixed with equal parts, arrogance and self-exaltation, and all of it is called fear of man. Where is this going to lead? A little forecast in the book. It's going to lead to absolute paranoia. He's going to lose his mind. When David defeats Goliath in chapter 17, and Saul and the people join in the fight, and they go and they experience the plunder, they're going to all come back. And here's what we read in chapter 18. As they return from battle, women from every city among the Israelites, they came out into the streets singing and dancing, and they sang this. Saul has struck down his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. And we read verse 8, chapter 18. Saul was very angry. Self-centered jealousy. And Saul eyed David from that day on. Self-protection. He needs to control his outcomes. And then finally, ready for this? Chapter 18, verse 15. And Saul became afraid of David. He saw that David had great success and he stood in fearful awe of David. There you have it again. 
fear of man. And it's going to get so bad that he's going to throw spears at his son at the dinner table because he thinks Jonathan is more aligned to David, which he was. He's going to try to kill his own son. In chapter 22, he will kill 85 priests of Nob because they gave safe harbor to David. The descent is gross. So we need to stop, and we're going to let this be applied to us, but we need to consider the sober warning of this passage, the application of fear of man that would lead us not just into a rough life. You can have a lot more bad days if you're prone to the fickle opinion of others. That's true. But the text of Scripture would say you need to be very careful. It will lead you on a path of God rejection, where you reject God even as he then rejects those who reject him. And so I want you to think with me about this downward trajectory, this descent. Fear of man begins with God forgetting, a heart that does not believe why God made us or that he made us or how he would redeem us and remake us into something else. It doesn't believe that. That leads to a heart that then looks to other people for our design, for our calling, for our purpose, for our mission. And and we then give increasing influence to other people. That then digresses from there to self-loathing because what others give is never enough. And it must be my fault. They don't like me. I begin to compare myself to others I need things from, and it won't satisfy me. And then that digresses to a place of demanding they give it to me, which is a form of self-exaltation. I demand they give what they don't seem to want to give, and I demand they don't stop giving it because I don't know who I am. And that digresses then to God rejecting self-idolatry. I'm not interested in what God thinks of me anymore. Quite frankly, I end up with no more spiritual discernment because I don't know what's true and not true anymore. And it leads to total blindness. And that's the terrifying thing we have here. Saul actually thinks he obeys God. Total blindness. And because the heart is deceptively wicked, Jeremiah 17, 9, when fear of man replaces fear of God, even when the wheels fall off the wagon... When others intervene to try to talk to us about the danger in our life, the person who has fallen prey to fear of man eventually doesn't even see it. So think about this example here. What do you mean I didn't obey? And Samuel says, do you not hear the sheep? I'll show it to you. What do you mean I worship other people's opinion? Um, Saul, did you see your monument to yourself? With evidence is starting to compile. One who is blind to sin doesn't see it. And that's the power of this chapter. That's the power of this descent. I read an article years ago in the resurgence, eight digressing snares of the fear of man. Let me just list them. Fakeness. If you're overly motivated by the opinions of others, you'll be a chameleon for the sole purpose of fitting in. You won't know yourself. And that leads to decision paralysis. When we live out of fear rather than the convictions of God and His Word, we spin in circles. We can't really move forward because we don't know why we would. And that leads to ineffectiveness. We lose focus on tasks that are very blatant and clear because we're too preoccupied with what others might be thinking. And then that eventually leads to apathy. Fear man and you'll quit taking risks because the potential of failure will always be there, as will the potential of embarrassment. It's easier not to care. So apathy sets in. And then that leads to lack of love. People become projects to manage or spectators to impress. And our relationship with others is no longer 
rooted in compassion, just calculating of what we might lose if it doesn't go the way we want. And then that leads to dishonesty. Blatant dishonesty. Because we won't speak truth to someone's life for fear of their potential response, so we don't go there. And then that leads to isolation. Because fear of man compels us to control everything, to make sure people respond the way we want, even if that means we have to go at life totally alone. And then when we're all we have, it leads to the dangerous, God-rejecting self-idolatry we see in this text. Often lived out with paranoia. And then sadly, the people who end up descending that far are completely blind to it. So here's the next thing we want to apply as we move toward the Lord's Supper is, if this is your struggle, if it's mine, is there any hope? Like at all? I would tell you that there is because what does God do in His infinite power that only God can do? Doesn't the Bible clearly say He opens the eyes of the blind? Then Jesus in John 9 and Mark 9 actually live it out and heal the blind. But what of Isaiah 42, where the prophet tells us that God is going to come and when His kingdom comes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. Those who are consumed with darkness and grope their way around will be able to see. So here's the good news. Saul didn't see it unto God rejection, but if you're sitting here today and you're like, wow, I fear people way too much. It's dangerous. I've seen its cost in small ways. What if I... What if it doesn't stop? I tell you, if you see it all today, that's God's doing because He makes those who are blind see. And so if your thought this morning is, Lord, help me to repent of something that I struggle with when I see its descent in this text. Well, what is repentance? Repentance is just having God help us see clearly and us responding with fear of Him. And so we can think of 2 Corinthians 7 where Paul writes and says, Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret. It produces repentance that includes an awareness of God's holiness, but we're not sad that we, we see it because there's such beauty in having it exposed. And so we don't grieve the way the world grieves, like, oh, we just have to die to this sad reality that we've had fear of man. No, it gives us life. It gives us earnestness, Paul says. It gives us longing to be made new. Let me ask you, do you read a story like this and see any of yourself and say, Lord, help me to repent? Yes, I regret it, but I want to have repentance without regret because I believe that there's a beautiful thing called the gospel that this draws me into. And that's exactly where we're going to go to kind of close this up. We know that when Saul loses the kingdom, we're told that the kingdom's going to go to the better neighbor king. We meet David in chapter 16. We know the promises given to David are going to be infallible and, and perfectly come true. And the promises to David is there's a seed coming after you. Who's the seed? It's going to be Jesus himself. The better one. Understand with me, if you have struggled with fear of man, when you repent, you're coming to something better to one who's actually worthy of fear. So think of it this way. When we repent, we come out of hiding to something safer. The fear of man lays a snare, but the one who trusts in the Lord is safe. That's Proverbs 29, 25. We repent, we come to something safer. We can come out of hiding. When we repent, we come out of a fluid, fickle confusion because of what others think of us to a firm identity. I'm the Lord's. 
He made me and he saved me. And we come to the better king to get that identity from what do we see? Is Jesus not the one by which we would say, I'm a new creation? The old is gone, the new has come. Is Jesus not the one by which we say, I am righteous before God? Even though I know I've been unrighteous, I'm righteous in His sight because of what Jesus became for me. He became sin. And when we think of who Jesus is, is He not the King who had no fear of man whatsoever? He only did what His Father said. The opinions of others about His ministry did not have any impact on Him at all. He's the better one. So the appeal this this afternoon is, know whose you are. Know whose you are. The saddest, worst, seemingly incomprehensible, irreversible things I've set my feet into as a pastor in the last 25 years, I could almost universally say have fear of man at the center of it. Know whose you are. How do you get out of fear of man? You fear something greater than man. Who do we fear then? We fear Jesus the King. So let me leave you with Colossians 1 as we take the Lord's Supper. Jesus is the one by whom we've been delivered from the domain of darkness and transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Who is He? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, or rulers, or authority. Everything was created by Him and for Him. That's just part of Colossians 1. How do you get out of fear of man? Fear something greater. Fear the better one. The King God sent, who bore your wrath for fear of man and every sin attached to it, to give you an identity that's unshakable. And so as we take the Lord's Supper now, this table is offered to you. This table is offered to those who know whose they are. The anointeds. And he's good. Let me pray. Father, would you nourish us now as we take of the Lord's Supper? We taste and see that you're good. That your gospel is good. Would you expose us to the depth of what we need to repent of if fear of man has taken hold of us? And would you set us free as we fear and have awe and realize we belong to the better king, the better one, who was you who came in the form of man, Jesus, the incarnate one. Give us the new creation identity that we have in him. Give us confidence in it. Would it hold us in a world with so many things seeking to derail us with fear? We ask for your help in Christ's name we pray. Amen.